You're listening to the Library Pros Podcast with Chris and Bob, a techie librarian and a computer IT guy discussing libraries, technology, and all things this side of the reference desk. Thanks, Carl. Hi, and welcome to episode 38 of the Library Pros Podcast. I'm Chris, and Bob is stuck somewhere setting up digital displays for some library somewhere. I don't know. He said, oh, I'll just join you on FaceTime. Uh, you know, Bob, we can only do one person at a time on FaceTime. Really? So that's where Bob is today. So <laughs> it, you just got me. So today we're coming to you again from the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York. And if this is your first time listening, thanks for coming. The Library Pros podcast is produced bi-monthly. So don't forget to subscribe to our RSS feed, Apple Podcasts, or whatever Apple's calling their podcasts nowadays. Google Play, we're on Stitcher. We now are on iHeartRadio and Podbean. And we also have um, an email subscription service that you can check out from our website, thelibrarypros.com. And if you uh, like what you hear, consider leaving us a review on one of the services that you uh, like to listen to us on. Uh, and don't forget, we're also on Twitter at The Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com slash thelibrarypros. So joining us today is Monica Dabrowski, uh, the Director of Digital Services at the Gail Borden Public Library in Elgin, Illinois. Um, <clears throat> she also has a, uh, she was named Library Journal Mover and Shaker for 2017, so congratulations on that. Um, and welcome you. to the podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to be here, Chris, and the absent Bob. The yeah, absent Bob. Um, so today we're going to speak with Monica about that, an innovative idea that she had to turn, that turned into Gail's Toolkit for Librarians. But before we jump into all that great stuff and, and that great resource, let's learn more about Monica and her library. So um, from what we understand, you had a background in training outside of the library field. Tell us about that. Well, I actually spent about 15 years training and managing people and projects in corporate America before I became a librarian. So lots and lots of experience there. There were a lot of things about it that I really liked, um, but I was never quite comfortable with the idea that folks could only get access to the work I was doing if they paid money. That always kind of struck the wrong chord with me, and I always kind of hoped that someday I'd be able to do some kind of higher level, more meaningful training and, you know, working in the library, I, I can go home and put my head on the pillow every night and feel great about what I'm doing. So it was a nice way to bring those skills into a different sort of environment and, you know, bring something new to the table. Well, it really is. I mean, we're going to get into this in our third segment about, you know, what you did before, you know, libraries. But it is interesting that most people that, that end up being in library land, it wasn't their first career. <laughs> I just it's find so that true. it's really fascinating, right? So again, another example, you're not one of the one percenters, which is fine because that's why there are only one percenters that decided to become librarians, like when they were three or something like that. Yeah, I think I know like two. Yeah, yeah my wife was one of them, believe it or not. <laughs> um, so uh, so how did you come to make it to library land and, and ultimately the Gail Borden Public Library District? Okay, well, this is kind of like Odysseus on the Odyssey. So... I started managing in call centers when I was, you know, just a wee lass and 
I had a demanding job and I, I quit college two classes shy of my associate's degree and said, you know, I'll go back in six months or I'll go back in a year after things settle down. Well, all of a sudden, seven years had passed and I still had no degree. And though I had worked my way up in the food chain of call center management, and there were some fulfilling things about that, I kind of looked at my life and said, you know, this is the only option I'm ever going to have if I don't go back to school. And I loved school. I mean, I, if, if they paid you to be a professional student, I would just sign up today and I would write all the papers and do all the projects. So a friend said, you know, you really should just go finish those two classes. And I was like, okay, yeah, you're right. It's just two classes. And once I went back, I was like hooked. I was like, I, I really want to do this. I want to get my bachelor's degree. The trouble was I was living in Arizona. I'm a West coast girl. And, um, they didn't have a lot of programs for non-traditional working adult students. And I thought, well, I work for a company that's headquartered in the Midwest. Maybe I'll see if I can transfer and if they have any other options there. So I checked and they did. There were three good colleges in Illinois where my company was at. So I thought, I'll just apply and see if they take me in. All three did, and I said, okay, well, now a, a job better come along or I'm kind of screwed. So um, a job came along, and like less than a year after this whole master plan hatched, I was living back here outside of Chicago, and um, I really, really wanted to be a history professor. I'm one of the many librarians who wanted to be in the history field and then found out there were no jobs. Um, and once they were like, well... You have to get tenure, and that involves all of, jumping through all of these hoops, and and also you probably want to get a PhD. I was like, um, no, because I have a small child, and I barely see him as it is, and I work full time, and at some point I would like to have a life again. So, my academic advisor said, "Well, hey, have you thought about being a librarian?" And I was like, "Well, yeah, I mean, forever, but." you know, what's involved with that. And she says, well, we have a good school here, Dominican University. And if you're an academic librarian, you could teach. And I was like, well, great. I'm going to go to that info session. So I went and I was like, these are my people. I feel it. I feel the tug. And so I signed up for school and two and a half years later, I was walking across the stage with a degree and started looking for a job. And like I said, I'd had like 15 years of management project. I mean, like, like all kinds of experience and I couldn't get any interviews at all. No one would even talk to me. And of course, no one gives you feedback. They just send you a letter saying, you know, unfortunately other people were more qualified. So you don't really know why, but then I had some people in the field kind of look at my resume and, you know, is that the problem or whatever? And they're like, no, you don't have any library experience. And I was like, but I have all this other experience and I'm, I've been a professional trainer for like 15 years. Don't you need teachers and libraries? And they were like, well, it's really hard to get your foot in the door if you don't have that experience. So you know, I was like, well, what do I do? And they said, you just got to keep applying. And, you know, at some point, maybe someone will take a chance on you. And so I stayed where I was because um, I was making a lot of money and relatively happy at a nice software company. And then one day I walked in and they laid off my entire department. And that included me. 
no warning. So I was like, okay. So I went home and I was kind of like downtrodden. And my husband's like, this is a sign. It is time for you to get into libraries full time. You didn't work and sweat and cry like all of those years over your education to, you know, not be working in your field. And I don't want you to take a job until it's in the library. So I was really, really grateful for his support. And I said, okay, that's what I'm going to do. So I, I went to, you know, a professional company that, you know, helps you craft your resume. And I learned a lot about resumes and um, I talked to every librarian I could find and got a lot of, um, you know, advice and input. And over the course of the next six months, I applied for 36 jobs. And I finally got an interview at a small career college who actually said, you're exactly the type of non-traditional librarian that we're looking for. We want someone with a lot of management experience and teaching experience and someone who hasn't been in that world for their whole life and can kind of think outside of the box. And, you know, I was like, like crying for three days, like, oh my God, somebody's finally going to take a chance on me because I just felt like if I ever got a chance that I could really do something, you know, to help. And um, so I, I pulled up for work and that's when I realized I was the only librarian in the entire college and I had to do everything myself. I didn't have any student workers at first. I had no assistance. So I'm talking cataloging, I'm talking acquisitions, tech services, reference, instruction, programming. I had to create all of that from scratch. And I was so grateful for that job because you want to talk about trial by fire and have to use every single thing that you learned in school. That was the experience. So I worked there for, um, two and a half years and um, I got a promotion while I was there to the National Librarian. So I started doing um, administration of their online virtual library and started getting more and more into tech stuff. And then one day I was like, you know, like this is great, but I feel like I'm being tugged to go somewhere else. It was just my, my intuition saying, you know, you should just check the job boards or whatever. So I looked and there was this new position at Gail Borden called Technology Education Manager. And when I was unemployed, I had been volunteering there and met a lot of great people. So I, I called up the volunteer coordinator and I said, hey, do you think they might consider me for this job? You know, can I send you my resume? And I sent it to her and she's like, you should absolutely apply. You know, and the hiring manager is our former um supervisor who met you when she was here and really liked your work. So I said, okay, great. Maybe I'll at least get an interview. Um, you know, cause it was one of those things where all of a sudden one day you see your dream job on paper and you go, no, no. Okay. The next qualification, I'm not going to have it. Okay. The next one, I'm not going to have it. And you keep reading the list and you're like, but I have that, but I have that, you know, and you just keep hoping that you can convince them <laughs> to at least talk to you. You know, like, if you just talk to me, just give me a chance. So um, I got a call for a Skype interview and I Skyped with them and I loved the the people immediately. And then they asked me to come in and, and teach them a session on something. So I did a session on Tumblr and I had like 10 people in the room that were all, you know, like administrative level. And I had the executive director in there too. And it was a little little nerve wracking, but she and all of them were 
were great. And then they did this interview. And I remember walking out of the interview and saying, you know, this library is really special. And these people are really trying to do great things for this community. And I just feel like I could add some value here. And um, a week later, they called me and they said, we want you, you're our person. And so, you know, May 27th, 2014 was the first day I ever felt like I actually made it in life. And like, I was starting my career at the age of 41, you know, it was just like, like one of those like hallelujah moments in life. It was fantastic. Wow. That is a great story. That really, really is great because it, uh, my, my story is not dis dissimilar to yours. So it really is, is kind of a nice thing. I was part-time for a really long time, uh, stay-at-home dad. And um, where I am now at the Sachin Public Library, um, I was working there part-time, and they, they, they made the, the choice to get me. And uh, like you said, dream job, right? Yeah. Isn't it amazing when that can happen? Because, you know, your parents always tell you, like, just follow the signs and you know, you'll, you'll end up where you're supposed to be. And then you end up spending a lot of time in places, you know, you're not supposed to be, but you just try to pick up on the lessons and you just keep thinking, is that, is that destination ever going to come? And then when it comes, you're just like, wait, this can't be happening. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So how long have you been in the profession total? Uh, five years. So I got my degree nine years ago, but it, it, um, took me four years to get a job in the profession. So, um, yeah, 2012 was when I started. Wow, so you covered a lot of ground in a really short period of time, and you got a library journal, uh, Movers and Shakers. Yeah, that was kind of like, like, whoa, you know, I just, I was never even expecting that. I mean, I knew our project was good, but, um, you know, to win any kind of award being such a newbie, even though, like, I'm older than a lot of people because I started later, you know, it just, I mean, I there's so many people that I admire in our profession that are just doing such amazing things. And, and to even to have anyone say like what you did is really great. It, it's just, you know, it's so phenomenal when it comes from people that you respect so much and whose club you always wanted to be part of, you know, it's like the cool kids finally accepted you. Oh yeah. <laughs> Big smile on my face. Cause I know exactly where you're coming from with that. That, and that really is satisfying and gratifying, right? It's it's um, it's validation. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it feels really good. Uh, so, tell us about uh, about the library. Tell, okay. tell us about it. I would love to. So. And tell us about God. The view is gorgeous. Oh yeah, the the view is gorgeous. So we're in Elgin, Illinois, which is a suburb in um, uh, like a northwestern suburb of Chicago. We're about thirty miles from the city. And um, we serve about 145,000 people in our district, and we have three branches. We're the largest library district in the state based on population served, but we're like, you know, fifth if you look at size of the, you know, population in town. Um, our, main, our main library is over 140,000 square feet, and the entire back of the library is made of glass windows. And... Our executive director, Carol Metal, who's just one of the most amazing people you could ever meet, is very passionate about the look of our buildings because she believes that everyone in the community deserves a nice and well-maintained and comfortable place to come and spend time. We have a very diverse population and um, 
some of the folks in our community don't have anything. I mean, some are, you know, living in multifamily apartments and, you know, the children are on free lunch and things like that. And, you know, she said, I, I always want there to be one place that people can come and just feel like this is my place. And this is, you know, this, this is really cool and it's comfortable and it's kind of a palace for them. And, and she, she wants them to be able to enjoy that river view. So I forget what the distance is, but we have kind of a thing where none of the shelving can be within a certain, you know, certain number of feet of the window so that people can always enjoy the views, which is just so cool. Um, we have about 85% uh, of our community is families with children. So we have a very, very um, young and multi-generational population. And uh, we have a lot of Hispanic folks in our community. That's about, I think, 44% of our community. And we have, you know, Laotian and Filipino and um, young and old. And it, it's so it's so diverse. And it's such a joy to get to experience so many di different types of people and, you know, come up with meaningful services and programs and classes and things. Um, when so many different types of people need different things, it just grows you a lot as a person. Absolutely. And uh, you learn a lot from those people too. That's one thing that people forget about when you talk about diversity. You learn so much from people because not only do they come from different cultures and you're learning about their culture, it's just the way they, maybe it's a cultural thing, but maybe it's just the way they do things, the way they carry themselves, that the experiences that they bring with them I always find it is fascinating to speak with them. And thank God for Google Translate. Absolutely. And, um, you know, one of the cool, like, little things that, that I've picked up on over time, like, one that really sticks out for me is um, our Hispanic customers who come to the tech classes, they don't, they don't typically like to register because, you know, schedules can change a lot or sometimes they don't have childcare. So drop-in programs are more popular with them. So it's, you know, things like that or knowing that, you know, the teens are not going to come to a tech class if their parents are also invited, you know. So the teens have their own space in our library and only the high schoolers are allowed in there. And um, it's just it's incredible. I, I grow so much every day from every person that I that I get the joy of talking to that comes into our library. And and it sounds like your executive director has real vision with regard to the just with the building itself. I mean, the the way you're talking about how there's rules with regard to what can and can't be in blocking views and, and things like that. That that shows somebody that that sees more than just the nuts and bolts of the day to day. For sure. Um, but the, the best thing about her is she, she really is supportive of the staff. She, she surrounds herself with talented people that also have vision in different areas than she has. And she lets, lets us run with the ideas, you know, it's like, okay, if something didn't go well, it, it was a pilot. Okay. And the plane crashed. <laughs> The plane crashed. Okay. So like, like fly to a different destination next time. But, you know, she's, I know for me personally, ever since I joined, she's been so supportive. I just, I couldn't have done all the things that I've, that I've done without, without her saying, yeah, yeah, we'll support that or go for it. And, 
you know, it, it's just been incredible because I've, I've had a lot of bosses in, you know, corporate America and um, I've had a few really good ones and I've had a lot that weren't very great. So having someone who encourages and supports you so much, and that's every level of management at the library is just, I mean, that makes every day like your birthday right there. Well, that's for sure. So um, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to get into what the inspiration for Gail's toolkit was and how it benefited not just Gail Borden, but library professionals all over the country. So we'll be back in just a moment. So now we... Okay, we're back with Monica Dabrowski from the Gail Borden Public Library. Is Gail Borden Public Library or Public Library District? Public Library District, yep. Okay, okay. so before we get into the nuts and bolts of uh, Gail's Toolkit, which can be found at uh, www.gailstoolkit.com, let's talk about inspiration because where this idea comes from, you know, where did this idea come from? And, you know, was it something that you had as part of your, you know, when you, were you sitting at the, the reference desk and something just popped into your head? Or was this something you had as like a planned design when you were still trying to, to land that library job? Tell us how, you know, wh where the spark came from. Okay, that's a great question. So the spark actually was ignited, if you will, at this local computer class instructors meeting that I go to for our local consortium. And one of the things that we do in that group, we meet quarterly and we talk about, well, who's doing, you know, what new classes and what classes are you guys offering? And so my first time there, I was like, why are we all saying we're teaching Microsoft Word classes? Because I just wrote a series on Word. And that means she wrote a series on Word and he wrote a series on Word. And like 15 people in this room wrote a series on Word. And so... I was kind of ruminating on that and, you know, what, what could we do maybe about that situation? And then I encountered a problem at my library that needed a solution. And the problem was once I came and kind of looked at what tech classes we were offering and what we wanted to offer in the future and things like that, we realized that we had way more demand than I could keep up with because I had experience, a lot of experience writing classes and instructional design and stuff, but there's only so many I can create and teach. There's only so many hours in the day and I was a department of one and I knew I needed help. So I went to Melissa Bernasic, the head of our information services department, and I said, hey, can any of your librarians train classes for me? And she said, great idea, I love it we have a couple of obstacles. And I said, well, what's that? And she said, my librarians haven't been taught how to teach. And, um, you know, they don't have time to write these classes. And I said, well, what if I wrote all the classes, you know, between me and, and my contract trainers? And so they'd have all the materials. 
and we could do like a repeatable type process. And she said, well, that would, that would be the one hurdle, but you know, they still don't know how to teach and they might be kind of uncomfortable getting into that area. And I said, well, what if we had a meeting with them and kind of, you know, found out what their concerns were. And then I could do a session for them on, you know, how to manage in a classroom environment, how to set the stage, you know, and all of those skills that I already had. And she said, okay, let's try it. So we got some classes ready and we had a meeting with her librarians who are all just amazing people. And um, it ended up being like kind of a therapy session in a little respect because, you know, as librarians, we like to have the answers, right? We kind of pride ourselves on the fact that, hey, if you don't know or you can't figure it out, come to me because I'm skilled at finding the answers. And, you know, some of the comments were like, well, what if they ask me a question? I don't know the answer because I'm not an expert on this. And, you know, well, what if I end up looking stupid? And the same fears that anyone would have. And we, we kind of just said, you're already teaching and you don't even know it. And they said, well, what do you mean? And we said, well, what happens when someone comes to the reference desk with a device? Well, we sit there and we help them figure out whatever their question is. And I was like, that's teaching. That's just one-on-one. -on -one. So after we connected the dots a little bit, you know, they were all like, okay, well, we'll try it. So, you know, put them on the class schedule for the, whatever newsletter cycle it was. Feedback was good on both sides, repeated it. Feedback was good, repeated it one more time. And then Melissa and I said, you know, if this worked here, and in the meantime, I was writing a bunch more classes, she said, you know, we could use this to help people at other libraries. And I said, yeah, especially maybe the small and rural libraries who don't have a staff like we have, who don't know how to write classes and you know, barely have working internet in some cases and have people coming in and saying, well, I have to find this, you know, government thing online, or I need to create a resume to apply for a job online now. And I don't know how to do that. So I said, we should do something about that. And Melissa said, yeah, we should. And then she said, how about if we try to find a grant to fund this project? And I said, okay, I always wanted to do something with a grant, but that scares me really bad because I've never, never done anything with a grant. Okay. And there was a grant in place when I came that was a nightmare to administer. And um, Melissa said, okay, I'll, I'll look around. So the next day, because this is how fast Melissa works, she came back and said, ALA Publishing has a Carnegie Whitney grant. And I think we might be able to qualify for that. And I said, okay, what's the rub? And she said, well, we have to create a Pathfinder. And I said, well, part of what we were talking about was we could put together a list of resources for folks to use about, you know, adult learning principles and instructional design and stuff like that. And I said, well, couldn't we do a version online with a website? And she said, yeah, a web portal would be really cool. And I said, well, I'll reach out to ALA and ask if that would qualify because we didn't even know if they would say yes. So I called and they said, um, no one's ever proposed anything electronic before for this award. And we said, does that mean you wouldn't consider it? And the minister said, no, no, actually, please submit it. And we'll make sure that we look at it because that's something that hasn't been done. So we, you know, said we want to do this web portal and we want to post the class materials online. We want to have this online pathfinder of resources. 
We want to put, you know, different speaking engagements or group meetings where people can come and talk to us about this in person. And, you know, we want to do this all as like a super easy to use website. And we submitted our stuff and, um, and there, there we went. And of course, before we submitted everything, we went and talked to Carol, our executive director. And we said, Hey, we're thinking of doing this grant. And, you know, obviously that would require a lot of our time over the next couple of years while we got this up and running. But we, we think if this thing catches on, like it could really be a useful tool that maybe someday an organization like PLA or LIDA or somebody could, you know, assimilate and, and, you know, promote to users. And she was like, that's a great idea. Go, go ahead and explore it. And if you guys get it, we will totally support it. So we submitted it and we waited and then we got a letter that we got accepted and we were just shocked. And um, like, how could we get a grant right out of the gate? Like, you know, it seems too easy. And then we started the hard part of like making sure everything was in the right format and the templates. And um, we needed to find a, uh, a sponsor for the website because the grant you know, was, uh, you know, was part of the money. So we got talked to some other people and got them kind of involved. And, um, you know, that was kind of it. So we were supported by the library to work on it during work time with the understanding that, you know, it was a two year commitment. And after that point, we could reevaluate and see and, um, you know, kind of go from there. Wow, that is one heck of a process, huh? Yeah. Yeah, wow. And and the funding is still in place? Um, no, the funding ended. So uh, our grant ran from 2015 to 2017, uh, Feb March to March. And it was for $5,000 was the amount of the grant. So we used that to basically travel around to places and talk to people about the portal. Um, we used it to, we bought, you know, some tchotchkes to give away at conferences. Um, we used part of it to have some cookies made with our GNOME logo, which was a huge hit at the Illinois Library Association conference. And, um, you know, uh, just paying for different things associated with the grant. Like we had a logo made um, by a graphic designer. So because we thought everyone likes merch, you know, and if this thing gets big, like we want to have an actual logo. So she created Gail, our gnome and our androgynous gnome with the iPad and the Apple Watch. And, um, you know, then rails our local consortium we went and talked to them and they said this idea is fantastic we'll pay for your website for two years so they sponsored our wix site and then um we said well hey could you also give us some money for like some big conferences because we'd like to go you know to ala or pla and um you know talk to people about the project maybe some higher up people who might be able to help us adopt it later and they said, well, how about if you do some webinars for us and we'll pay you because that's one of the services they offer. So we did some webinars and then we got some conference money. And um, yeah, that was that was kind of how how that worked. So um, it was it was really cool. I I didn't even know about some of these organizations and resources before we started the grant project. And now I have you know friends and contacts all over. So it's been really great. It sounds like, yeah, it's, it sounds like 
just the mobilization for it alone was uh, was tough, and it was great that you got the funding to to actually get it implemented. And you use yeah. you still Wix as your your yeah, site. Wix. Yeah. What happened was kind of funny because we were waiting to get the final word from Digital Learn, and our subscription was running out like a month before we were going to get the final word and we're like, Oh no, what do we do? So we thought, you know what, we're just going to use the last of our money to pay for the website. And you know, if it's a duplicate and you know, digital learn moves forward, that's okay because then people can, you know, we can redirect them to digital learn. And so like literally a month later they were like, yeah, we want you to be part of digital learn. So that really is it's, and it's a great project. Um, and, that's segueing into our next question, you know, talking about the site itself. Describe the resources that you provide and, um, and that are available and, uh, and anyone can access it, right? Yes, it's absolutely free. And that was one of our um, central ideas that we were very firm on. We said, you know, because like some for-profit places, you know, organizations that I won't discuss here, like offered to you know, buy it from us, but then they were going to charge a fee and stuff. And we're like, no, because we made this for libraries that don't have resources. So it defeats the purpose if they have to pay. And we said, this needs to always be free. So, um, so it's a free portal and you can find the content on both, uh, gilstoolkit.com and digitallearn.org, um, which is our new home. So it's composed of um, an area called, you know, tracks and classes, which basically what we did is we used a structured methodical, you know, instructional design type principle to create these classes and all the associated materials. And then we put them online. So there's 85 classes up. We were, our goal by the end of our grant period was 40. But we liked it so much. And, it, you know, by the time you get going, you're like, hey, what about this class? And hey, what about this class? And then we started getting some contributors who said, hey, I've got a class over here on this. Do you guys want it? And we were like, yes. So um, it grew to its current size of 85 classes. And so what you can do is you can actually download all of the materials for a class. So say, for example, it's Microsoft Excel Basics. There'll be a design document, which is um, what we call a lesson plan. So that's everything the instructor needs to know and discuss and train people on as part of the class. Then there'll be an activity sheet, which is that hands-on adult learning reinforcement of the concepts part. There'll be a handout, which is the, you know, one page. Here are the important things from class. Now go out and play and be dangerous type stuff. Um, most of them have PowerPoint presentations because technology can fail. And we've tried to connect to the internet and a website, right? And it hasn't been there because something went wrong. So oh, yeah. at, least, at least if you have screenshots, you know, at least you can still hold the class. And then um, a lot of them have class files like our Excel. Um, we have an Excel series of five classes that all build on each other. And then the practice files use a budget. So you can actually download all the practice files in Excel format. And then there's a class survey because that assessment piece at the end is very important to us. And that was one of the first things I put in place when I joined the library 
because I wanted to understand how was the experience with the instructor? You know, were we bringing quality people in? Was there anything we did to, uh, you know, enhance or impede, uh, you know, your learning? And we also wanted to know about the content. And then we wanted a space for you to share your ideas with us. And we use those surveys to mine, we kind of mine them, if you will, to get ideas for new classes based on customer demand. So that's kind of what's available in there. And then there's also the learning and libraries, which is that Pathfinder piece. So we, we thought it would be cool to give um, an LTA student a chance at, you know, to work on a professional project. So that was part of what our grant money paid for. We paid a student to help us work on the bibliography piece and, you know, pull, you know, current articles and great books and stuff like that so that, you know, we hope it sparks an interest in, well, you know, did they just throw a dart at a barn or like, did they use some kind of process? And if so, where did that information come from? So we're hoping to kind of spark some curiosity to read and learn more. This is an amazing project. Um, I'm just thinking as you're, you're speaking, I'm thinking about like the rural libraries in, in northern New York or in Vermont or in Pennsylvania where they don't have the same resources we do. And I, I try, we try to share with them as much as we can, but it, it is like a clearinghouse. You know what it almost reminds me of? It reminds me of um, in, in a college library environment, a LibGuide. Yes, absolutely. But it's a LibGuide for librarians. Absolutely. Yeah. And we've had some, we've had some incredible customer feedback on the toolkit, which is why we pursued, you know, getting adopted, if you will, by a larger library related organization. I mean, we had a librarian from Bulgaria, from the Yambul province in Bulgaria, contact us and say, somebody on a Facebook group recommended this as a way to help teach seniors. And I'm using it to teach classes in Bulgaria. Wow. And we were like, what? You know, and then there was like this library, little Oregon, Illinois, our friend Kathy Wilson out there is she started offering some small group uh, tablet classes at the local senior center, and they'd been asking for help from the library, and she had no time or expertise to write anything. So she popped over and started using those, and um, there's a, uh, a library in uh, a small town in Illinois that, that drove um, like 100 miles to this thing we were speaking at to tell us that because of the toolkit, they finally are able to offer tech classes and their patrons have been asking for like two years and there was nothing they could do. So, you know, it's just the, these stories, like they just, they touch your heart and they, they make you realize that you are in the right place doing the right kind of work. And that, you know, however this came about, it's, it's a great, tool that can help a lot of people and especially hearing the the success stories in the small and rural libraries kind of reinforces our original vision although every library can use it you know it it's like we had nothing and now we can do something with it and so that's just been an incredible you know thank you and validation for the whole project do you have stats on visits to the site um, I did have stats on visits to the site through last March at the end of our grant because we had to include those. And I think we were at like um, 
20, 25,000 hits or something like that. Um, Melissa does our, our analytics, but I was told by, I was really kind of excited because I'm like, okay, now that we're going to be part of digital learn, is it going to take a while to take off? And the deputy director, Scott, who um, is my co-chair for the digital literacy committee, he told me after the first month, he's like, we're already getting really good numbers on digital learn. Like, you know, we weren't expecting it to start off this strong. And so it's just, you know, I, I just, I, I'm, I'm an introvert by nature, which I think most librarians are. But when I talk about what I'm passionate about, it's like, I can talk about it all day. So I'm always willing to, you know, come and talk to groups and, you know, do webinars and podcasts in this case and, you know, anything to help, help say, you know, don't, don't reinvent the wheel. Don't spend time that you probably don't have anyway. Just look through the toolkit, use what you can. And if there are some gaps in classes that you teach, become a contributor and, and let everyone share your knowledge and your expertise because it, it only helps all of us to decrease our workload. Absolutely. And, and I'm just, as you're speaking again, the wheels are turning. I, I'm thinking, wow, there, there's so many different places and, and libraries just here in Suffolk County, New York, that we could actually share this with that would, would utilize, be utilized really uh, efficiently, I think. Um, That's so, awesome. Yeah. It, it's and had, just as, as a, as a follow-up to the statistics question, I know you said you're not, you don't have the analytics, but have you seen analytics that, that break it down by region or, or continent to see, like you said, you had a Bulgaria, a uh, person from Bulgaria. Have you seen the stats worldwide for that? Um, I think, I think Melissa had a breakdown by region of the world because we, Initially, we at first we were like, okay, we're getting a lot of hits from Russia. And we were like, right. Okay, that's probably not good. But then after the library, like shortly after there or after that, the librarian from from Bulgaria contacted us and said, you know, I'm on this chat group with people from all over the world who are in charge of tech training for seniors, and we were like, oh, okay, maybe some of those Russian hits are legit. You know. Sure. Yeah, but yeah, but I um, but I know that Digital Learn has um, a whole analytics backend, and we're meeting at ALA Midwinter next month, almost this month, because um, just coming up, and uh, that's one of the things we're going to be talking about is you know how are we doing on the site so far? Are you going to computers and libraries as well? I'm not because I'm speaking at PLA in. Uh, There's only so many conferences, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, we have we have a, our digital services um, librarian is going to that, but I'm not. Wow, because I'm going. I would love to have seen you if I was there. I know. Well, I'm sure we'll hook up at some conference sometime. Oh yeah, that's for sure. So obviously, now you've curated all of these materials. You where where do you get the materials from? Do you just is it kind of like you know being left on your digital front door step in in the morning <laughs> or you know with. It, 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 it can be. Um, well, we... I mean, initially... I think the bigger question is, like, how do you curate? Where does it come from? Is it coming just from, from your network within Illinois, or is it coming from other places? And if you could describe where you're getting your info from and, and what you do with it once you get it. Yeah, well, so far, um, that's one of the things that we're still working out since we've become part of Digital Learn, because um, I was appointed the chair of the Digital Literacy Committee, and um, one of our one of our projects that we're looking at for this year is, you know, how can we involve 
librarians all across the country in taking turns curating the content, right? So we're, we're working on some plans for that because obviously PLA doesn't have 15 people sitting around that could do this full time, you know, and, and no one does. But again, if we share the work, I think it can be great opportunities for library school students for practicums and you know all sorts of things like that so the way it's been working up to this point is people have been emailing the materials to us directly like they'll get in touch and say okay what's required to be a contributor and we'll say you know okay we'll send us you know we'll send you our templates put your materials in it you know and then we'll look through and then then we kind of walk through the the te the quality testing if you will of each class you know are any steps missing? Um, did any at any part did it get confusing? And then we work back and forth with the content creator to kind of vet everything and you know make sure that it's easily understandable and it has all the accompanying pieces and whatever. And then what we've done is we highlight them as a contributor on our site. So like we have a little ribbon on our front page and we're like you know thanks to Kathleen from Vernon area you know and. And then we put it, there's a contribution area beneath the classes, um, you know, to kind of show, hey, hey, somebody else sent this class in and it's really been kind of neat. So we know we can't sustain that model long-term. So we're working, you know, to find what can we do to kind of disperse that work a little better. And I think you tap them into something um, that I don't think libraries do a lot of um, is reaching out to the library school students, to the library schools. Uh, one thing that we all don't have uh, uh, don't have a lot of is is time, right? So, reaching out to those librarians or those those librarian candidates who are still getting their masters, uh, I think, is a great resource that's really not tapped. Sometimes when you get a library entry, you're like, oh, what are we going to do with this kid? What are we going to, where are we going to, let's put them on the desk. Let's do this. As opposed to having something that's proactive where you could say, you could reach out to the schools and say, we have this and give them, for lack of a better way to describe it, like a curriculum of what you're going to yep. do with them. And part of it would be to curate for you. I mean, especially if you're going to get somebody who maybe is a, is a candidate for, that's getting their archiving certificate or somebody that's involved just with curation in general. I mean, because it's collection development, right? Yep. And also, you know, tell me which librarian of the future is not going to have to train in some way, right? Or, or develop some sort of user instruction document or class. I mean, I think that skill is a skill that's been missing in our curriculum in library schools. And I'm, I'm on the alumni council now at Dominican, which is so ironic, you know, cause I was like, you know, Oh my God, can I, can I like hang with these people? And now, you know, I'm helping to, um, you know, give advice about what might be good for the future, but we really, we need, historically it's been, okay, academic librarians will teach. And so there's these standards and school librarians will teach and the public librarians, that was not part of their curriculum at all. And there are more public librarians than any other kind, right? So we need to make a, a concerted effort to provide the right education and training so that public librarians know how to teach public librarians know how to design classes and the basics of instructional design you know what's an objective why is it important you know what's a learning outcome and 
Um, I think we have a lot of um, a lot of room to make some really neat strides in that area. And those are some of the things that the Digital Literacy Committee will be focusing on. So it's really cool to be part of that. And as you're speaking again, the wheels are turning because you, you can think of the different things that you can do with this. And I'm just thinking in terms of after the podcast gets released, I mean, we, we have a big listenership in Japan and Australia um, and we're picking up in Spain now. So, wow. so I'm apologizing awesome. ahead of time if you get contributions that you may not know what to do with. Right. So, I mean, that's a good well, problem to a have, good, right? That's a good problem to have. Yeah. I mean, it's a good problem to have to say, look, we just got 50 new classes submitted. And, oh, my gosh, what do we do? Right. You know, because um, it would really be cool to, um, in my mind, of course, I don't know if it'll end up working out that way. But in my mind, it would be neat for all of the library schools to offer a, like a, a digital learning or, you know, some kind of, you know, digital services type practicum. And what the students could do is they could learn how to create these design documents, how to break things down into steps, how to create meaningful activity sheets and stuff. And then they could also be responsible for like managing content on the site. You know, we could create, I mean, how cool would that be to spend a semester doing that? I mean, you know, and at the end, maybe you write your own class as part of like the final project or something and you get credit for that. I mean, that's such an essential area of librarianship now compared to, you know, how how maybe we worked in the past. Think about it even in terms of if you have to write a thesis. This is a great thesis topic. Absolutely. Yeah. So tell us how we can as professionals contribute to the toolkit. Um, well, if you go to uh, either galestoolkit.com or the Digital Learn website, there is an area where you can contact us. And um, if you have ideas for classes, if you're like, hey, I was looking through my stuff and I checked it against your site and, you know, there's no class on this, I'd be willing to contribute, you know, get in touch, use the contact us link or, you know, email me directly, you know, mdombrowski at gailborden.info and let me know that you're interested in, and let me know that you have something to contribute. I mean, we, we also don't want to make, even though we know we need a better process down the road, we also don't want to discourage people from participating because we've made it hard to do so. Okay. And so my final question before we wrap up the segment is what's the future hold? For, for this amazing, you know, this amazing uh, resource? Well, I hope it holds a lot more classes in the toolkit <laughs> for sure. Um, and I think, too, that that the, the marriage with the, the Digital Literacy Committee, I think just digital literacy in general is such a needed conversation in libraries. And I think that by continuing to refine the site and provide resources for both instructors and learners and, you know, talking at conferences and talking in webinars and things like that. I, I think we can just really make, um, make this issue really rise up and, and create some meaningful change in this area of librarianship. This is really a cool concept. I'm really, really happy you agreed to, to be on with us. Thank you so much for asking this, me. This is so much fun. So um, 
this is I think it's an it's an amazing tool, and I know I'm going to be kicking some classes over to you. Um, cool, that's awesome. So I can just imagine, like you were saying before about the rural libraries, this could be a, a very good resource for libraries who either don't have the staff or the 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 budget to actually sit down and create these things, or maybe even purchase from you know, from a company or have a, an independent contractor come in. Um, Absolutely. So yeah, I mean. The, the idea for this, I could just see this growing and growing as, as it moves along. So, again, it's galestoolkit.com. And, what yep. and what's the, uh, the new site? Uh, digitallearn.org. Digitallearn.org. Okay. So, we are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to ask, uh, we're going to ask Monica our uh, list of top 10 questions, even though there are 11 questions. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> Of library, we ask these same questions of every librarian. We like to call it the 032 list, which is a Dewey number for top 10 lists. And as we always do, we always give credit where credit is due. And we have to say, thank Melanie Cardone from the Longwood Public Library for naming the list of questions. So, Yay, Melanie. Yeah, right, Melanie. So we'll be back in just a moment. Okay, we are back with Monica Dabrowski, who's going to be our next participant or victim in the 032 list. So the questions in our list are inspired by Literary Hub, an informative library-related news site that has news uh, stories and interviews related to library land. You can see their work by visiting lithub.com and visit their site because they always educate and inform the library world on great topics from all over the world. So thank you, Literary Hub. Okay, you ready? First question, what did you want to be when you were a child? Okay, so what did I want to be when I was a child? I wanted to be a teacher. Um, money was really tight for us. We were very poor, but I always felt a calling to teaching. And um, my mom took me to this secondhand store, and we found this little wooden desk and all of these weird old textbooks. And she's like, hey, set up a classroom in your room. So I had these, like, books from the 60s on like teach yourself Russian and you know weird things like that so I'd sit my dolls up in the the chair and you know they would be my my little pupils and you know thank god they didn't know I had zero aptitude for languages like cannot do an accent to save my life but you know I read little house on the prairie all the time and Laura Ingalls didn't need any training to be a teacher, so I figured I didn't either. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. I love the stories that come along with our questions because there's always a backstory that's really interesting. So what was your first memory of a library? And who, Absolutely. Who was, okay. What was your first memory of a library, and who brought you to the library for the first time? You know, it would really be more appropriate to say what memories do I not have that involve libraries from when I was little? Because when you're poor and 
you can't afford to go and do things, you go to a lot of parks and you go to a lot of libraries. And so my mom took us to the library all the time. Um, we, we call my mom affectionately, we call her an info hog because she literally will read anything with text on it that crosses her path, like pamphlets, you know, maps, newsletters, whatever. But she, you know, instilled this idea that, you know, books are precious. And just because you're poor doesn't mean that you can't be educated as long as you have access to books. And so she would take us two and three times a week and we would get like, you know, max checkouts and, and just go through books like candy and, and be going back all of the time. And uh, so that was really what um, first inspired my, my love of libraries. I, I learned that the library was an equalizer and that even if you didn't have stuff, you were still welcome there and you could still learn because of what they had available to you. That's awesome. So when you... When did you decide to work in a library? And I know we kind of covered this before. And if it wasn't your first career path, obviously we talked about it was what it was before. Um, but when did you make that, that decision, that, that aha moment or that oh crap moment that I have to actually do it? Um, well, I made the, the decision to work in libraries after I saw that the history profession was not going to work out. And, you know, I, I started trying to get in right away because I, I thought, you know, I was always welcomed there and I know they have all these great resources and I always liked research and I thought, you know, that would be a, a good landing place for me. And, um, you know, I think I always had a service minded heart, if you will, and that I knew I needed to do something that was helping people like people had helped me along the way, you know, people who didn't have things and, have opportunities. And, you know, I think it's really like a gift in life if you can hear your calling and kind of be brave enough to pick up the phone and answer the call, you know? Okay. So what would you be doing if you were not working in a library? Um, I would probably be pressing my nose against the glass window and like looking in with jealousy at the people that were working in the library. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, or that, you know, and then probably still be managing in, in corporate America because I was good at that, but I, I wouldn't, it wouldn't be feeding my soul like library work does. Feeding my soul. I like that. So what is your favorite section of the library? Now, the, the original inspiration for this question was section meaning fiction, nonfiction, history, you know, self-help, whatever. But since libraries have expanded and what they do, section can mean anything. It can mean the makerspace. It can mean the quiet study area. It can mean the coffee bar. It can mean circulation. It can mean anything. So have at it. Well, um, it's definitely nonfiction, like the whole collection, just because of the whole self-education opportunity. And I also the study rooms I like a lot because I like that idea of being able to go somewhere else and kind of unplug from your everyday life and set up a new surrounding, but my favorite, my favorite time at, in the library is I work early. And so I'm usually one of the first people there in the mornings, other than our building and maintenance crew and walking through that big, beautiful building in the dark before anyone's there and just imagining all the possibilities and what are people going to do in here today? That's like my favorite time. That could be one of my favorite answers ever. 
Cool. That is really great. So if you had infinite space and budget, what would you add to your library? I would definitely add a family technology lab. We have a lot of folks without childcare for their youngins, and um, they want to come and learn, and they want their kids to engage in meaningful experiences. And um, it would really be awesome to have a place where parents and kids and grandparents and brothers and sisters, they could all kind of do that together. Um, I can tell you this, after living the life that I've lived, if, if my mom hadn't been able to bring her kids places, I mean, she would have been a lot less intelligent than she is today because, you know, having that, that opportunity to bring us along, even though we knew we had to behave and be quiet, you know, that was, uh, that was a real gift that I didn't realize until I got much older. So if we, if we had unlimited budget and space, being able to create a collaborative space like that for multi-generations to use, to learn technology together, that would be really awesome. And that's a nice, interesting take on it too, to have it as multi-generational. Yeah. We have a lot of grandparents every day bringing kids to the libraries, aunts and uncles, mentors, you know, it, it's just, um, like I said, we're, we're families with children in my district and we're both traditional and non-traditional families and, and everything in between. So, you know, family isn't necessarily defined just by the people that you're related to by birth, you know? Sure. So what do you love about your library? Kind of a loaded question, right? What isn't yeah, there like, to love? Yeah. What isn't there to love? Um, but I would really say the culture is what I love the most because the staff at my library, my fellow coworkers are just so amazing and they care so much, um, you know, about providing high quality services to our customers. And, you know, the patrons are so grateful that we're there, you know, so we just kind of put ourselves out there every day and the stories that we hear from our, you know, participants and people who attend our classes and stuff like prove that we are changing lives through our efforts. And, you know, it's kind of outstanding to think that you might get to contribute to someone's story in a positive way. And that really is part of what we do, what we do, and why we do what we do, what we do. Absolutely. Yeah. So what is the weirdest, not necessarily worst, weirdest <laughs> thing that's ever happened in your library? And remember, we had, don't have explicit, um, we don't have the explicit content um, rating for and on iTunes for this. So well, luckily the computer lab is all open tables, so there's nowhere to hide. Okay, <laughs> but um, we lost power once last year for about 18 hours, and like four hours in, it, there was a train derailment or something. And um, about four hours in, my hardcore gamers were still sitting there, like waiting for the power to magically come on, and I was like you guys have to leave now. We're closing the library and there's no electricity. So nothing in this department works like zero works in digital services without electricity. Right. Yeah. And so I'm just like, in my mind, I'm like, really is a video game that important? And, you know, then later I was thinking about it more in terms of like, you know, professional library tenants and stuff. And I was like, you know, well to them it is, that important you know that might be the only thing they have to look forward to in their whole life and who are you to judge you know what people are doing here like it's awesome that they want to spend their entire day at the library and you know be grateful for that so um i really think like you know 
just sitting around and just like looking at each other in the face and for hours and going like do you really need to get on that game you know that that was really an interesting experience for me and and it it brought me brought me back to yeah what's important to one person may not be important to another but they're all important needs that the library addresses it's a great answer okay so what or who is your favorite regular patron i have um a few favorite regular patrons but um one that sticks out is named omar he first started coming to my te my tech classes like three going on four years ago and he barely spoke english at the time and but he was so enthusiastic and like you know just kept asking me questions after and then he started coming to more and more classes and he ended up becoming one of our groupies. That's what we call our folks who just come for all of our classes and they sign up over and over again. And they're like, when are you offering more? And um, so, you know, now Omar is one of our biggest advocates. And, you know, on every single survey, he writes, you know, thank you so much. I, I love all these classes. And, and you know, it, it just feels like I should be the one thanking him because you know, he's the reason I'm there and he's the reason that we're doing the work that we do. And he's a great example of, how, you know, a thoughtful, you know, uh, attempt at creating a tech class can really, you know, make a difference in someone's life. Really can. You're right. hundred percent. So our final question, what are people without library cards missing out on? Well, at my library, they're missing out on uh, free tech classes. They're missing out on fantastic electronic resources, hundreds of thousands of chances for self-enlightenment, which knows no class or monetary boundaries of any kind, and more services than we could mention in an hour-long podcast. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Best, we're the best bargain in town. Absolutely. Well, I have to thank you again for, for being such a good sport, answering our questions, and having you on the podcast, because this has really been a lot of fun. Oh, uh, for me, too. Thank you, Chris. So, uh, again, it's www.digitallearn.org. And yep. you're on Twitter at M-O-N-M -M as in Mary, A-R-D-O-M as in Mary. So that's Mon Mardum. Yep. On Twitter. And you're, you want to give your email out one more time for people who may want to contact you? Yeah, it's M. Dombrowski, and that's M-D-O-M-B-R-O-W-S-K-I at info. Very, very cool. So thank you again for being on, and I hope you get tons and tons of new submissions now based upon people listening to us. Great. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, sure. So that's all the time we have for this edition, and I'm going to hit the button I say I never hit, right? Okay, so that's all the time we have for this edition. And if you have any questions or comments on the show, go to the contact us section of our website, thelibrarypros.com. And we will also include links and photos from this and all of our episodes on the site. And you can also check us out on Twitter at, at the Library Pros or on Facebook at facebook.com slash librarypros. Please uh, don't forget to subscribe to the RSS feed, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Sketcher, stop Sketcher, Stitcher, <laughs> iHeartRadio, Podbean, and our email service from our website. And if you like what you hear, please 
drop us a, a review because we could always use a review. It's always a nice thing. And as always, the opinions stated by the library pros and their guests are solely those of Chris and Bob and not those of the Sachem Public Library, the MS Clark Memorial Library, or any other library. So we will see you next time. You've been listening to the Library Pros Podcast. The Library Pros are brought to you by Pippet Productions and by the Library Pros themselves, Krista Cristofaro and Bob Johnson. Special thanks to Sachem Public Library for providing space for this podcast. Until the next turn of the page, I'm your announcer, Carlton Welch.